We're continuing in the text of John, which we went through part of this morning. I'll be focusing in, uh, reminding you of some of the things from uh, 22 forward. So remember what happened. Jesus crossed over the water. And in verse 22, it says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now, we're reminded in this text that first Jesus ignores their question uh, because they are seeking after the food that perishes. They're, they're asking for additional signs. He doesn't want to talk to them about what happened on the sea. And so he teaches them that the food that perishes is inferior to the food that endures to everlasting life. The Son of Man has been given authority <coughs> from the Father. And the Son of Man will give the food that endures to everlasting life. Now, what is that food? That food is the Word of God. It is himself, right? So Christ is offering himself when he offers his word. So the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God, is the laying bare of Christ himself for the people who are hearing him. And so he is giving to them that bread. Now, verses 28 through 29 say, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Okay, so... This idea that there is a, an everlasting life and that there is food that endures to everlasting life and that Christ has been sent with a seal on him. The idea of having the seal on him is that Christ has been sent to do the work of the Father. Right? He is, he's been given a seal. He's been given a symbol that is upon him that makes it so that it's clear that he's acting on behalf of the king. And so this action on behalf of the king is the work of the father. Now, these people are saying, okay, well, what shall we do that we can do the works, that we can work the works of God also? Okay, so in other words, okay, you're doing the works of the father who set his seal on you. How can we do the works of the father also? And Jesus' response is to say, well, here's the work of God. That you believe in him whom he sent. So there's a double entendre there. There's a double meaning there. Okay, One, the first one is God is the one who causes faith. But secondly, you can't do anything that is useful to God. You cannot do anything pleasing to God apart from faith. Okay, So whatever is not of faith is sin, we're told in Romans. It is impossible to please God without faith, we're told. And so, the idea at the beginning of being able to do any work that is on behalf of the Father requires faith. But also, faith is itself a thing that God 
causes. Now, verse 30, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, so this is, they've already received signs. They're following because they already received a sign of the 5,000. And the apostles, of course, witnessed him walking on the sea and bringing them safely out of a storm to the shore. This request for a sign is a disingenuous request for material to use the bread from heaven as a tool to get the bread that perishes. So they are treating the sign as though it's more important than the authority, more authoritative than the reality, that it is more important. Now, getting temporary food by claiming to want the everlasting food is a wicked thing. It is to take the inferior and make the superior serve it. The sign is not more important than the reality. The sign is not more authoritative than the reality. Signs do not cause faith. People can see miracle after miracle after miracle and not believe. This happened in Egypt with the plagues. It's an ironic thing, right? You have these people wanting a sign. How many signs did the Egyptians get? They got 10. And even more than that, they had other more minor signs. For example, there was the staff turning into the serpent. Right? There, are, there are many signs and wonders that were given there signs and wonders do not cause faith no in fact we are told by jesus elsewhere those that request a sign are a wicked and adulterous generation that the desire the craving for signs is about unbelief not believing the word of god so the response of christ to these people who are trying to get temporary food by claiming to want the everlasting food is to say the following most assuredly I say to you Moses did not give you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world right the physical bread from physically above is not the everlasting bread that comes from the throne of God that everlasting bread that comes from the throne of God is Christ. Jesus is the reality of the bread from heaven. He comes from the throne of God. He's been sent by the Father. He gives life to individual people and families from every nation. And he causes every nation eventually across time to covenant with God. And for those nations to be filled in such a way with the knowledge of God that the world itself is filled with life. Filled with the knowledge of God. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We talked last time about the fact that that giving life to the world should remind you of John 3.16, which says that Jesus, that God so loved the world. Does that mean every individual? No. Does God give life to every individual in the world? No. He gives life to the world. How? Going to every nation and causing converts in every nation and giving life to those individuals and causing those nations to be covenanted, to repent on a corporate level. Verse 34. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They don't understand what they're asking for. They don't know what they're asking for. 
And this should remind you of the Samaritan woman who said, you know, give me this water. She didn't know what she was asking for. Okay, so the unbelieving Samaritan woman and these unbelieving Jews are both being contrasted here. Neither of them understand that Christ is the one who nourishes, that Christ is the one who sovereignly gives life, that Christ is the one who is the bread, who is the water. And so again, we're pointed to the reality of the showbread and of the chalices and the tabernacle that are symbols. And we're given the reality of the symbols of the Lord's Supper. And we're given also the symbolism of manna itself, that these are things from heaven. They are given by God, but they are not the reality of the bread of life. Verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who comes to me. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. But what we see in these verses, 35 through 40, first, in verses 35 to 36, we have the I am statement, ego and me, which we talked about already. These I am statements are references back to the name of God, Yahweh. I am that I am. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew of Yahweh. And this idea here of ego and me, I am that I am, is an assertion of the eternality of Christ. Furthermore, he combines in that statement, I am that I am the bread of life. He is giving for us a part of his definition. So the I am that I am is an assertion of the law of identity. A is A. A truth is a truth. And yet also, what is the content of that truth? What is the content of A? Well, he is the source of life. He is the nourisher of life. He sovereignly does it. He is the bread of life. This is an assertion that Jesus is the one who gives the nourishment of life. He is divine as the ego of me, and he is divine as the bread of life. He who comes to Christ, in other words, he who believes in Christ, will never hunger or thirst. What he's saying is, he will never suffer ultimate dissatisfaction. <coughs> he will never suffer ultimate dissatisfaction and frustration. The people saw Jesus in the flesh. <clears throat> and the signs he performed. And yet they did not rightly understand or believe the truth revealed about him. <clears throat> I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And they had seen him in the flesh. But they did not understand and they did not believe what had been revealed. Verses 37 through 40 teach us that all that the Father gives to Christ, the elect, will come to Christ. They will believe in Christ. All the elect will believe in Christ. All that come to believe in Christ, 
all that come to Christ, all that believe in Him, will not be cast out by Christ. In other words, there will be a perseverance of the saints because God will preserve them. Because Christ came from the throne of the Father in order to do the decree of the Father and to fulfill the commands of the Father, not His own decrees, not His own commands, according to His own human will. Okay, so Christ is coming to fulfill what the Father has commanded. That's what verse 38 says. Verse 39 teaches the decree and command of the Father who sent Christ is to preserve all the elect whom the Father has given to Christ and not to lose a single one, but to raise every one of them up unto the resurrection of life as opposed to that of damnation on the last day. Verse 40 teaches us that the decree and command of the Father who sent Christ is that all who see, in other words understand, and all who believe in Christ will have everlasting life. And Christ will raise them all up on the last day unto life and not damnation. You see the stacking that's occurring here? All of the elect will be given faith all of the elect will be preserved. All of the elect will have a resurrection unto life. This golden chain is being laid out. There is a layering on of these assertions, these universal assertions. Verses 41 to 50. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So this is where we ended last time. There is a complaint because they do not understand the claim that Jesus is making. They think Christ's claim to come from the Father contradicts the fact that he was born to Mary that he is the adopted son of Joseph. We know his origin. It's not heaven. So they do not seek to understand it. They simply assert that there's a contradiction there because of their understanding from their own experience of his history. Verses 43 through 51. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the, in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who hears and has learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, 
he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So no one can come to Christ, no one can believe in Christ, unless the Father draws the person. The drawing of the Father is laid out here as a necessary precondition. It's also a sufficient condition. If the Father draws, the person will believe. All who are drawn will be raised up on the last day unto life. That's what, it's taught. That's what we're taught. So, no one can believe unless the Father draws, and all who are drawn will receive the whole golden chain of salvation. They will receive faith. They will receive justification, adoption, sanctification. They will be in a glorified paradisal condition at the time of dead. They will be resurrected unto glory. All of those promises. Now, in verse 45, there's a quote, which is not quite a quote. It's more of a paraphrase or explanatory statement. The closest statements we can find are in Jeremiah 31 and Micah 4. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, is relatively similar. And Micah 4, verses 1 through 4. The way it's quoted is, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who hears and has learned from the Father comes to me. So in other words, if you hear... In terms of understanding, this isn't just the beating of sound upon the eardrums. If you understand and you learn so that you have knowledge, right? knowledge involves believing a thing. Right? So if you understand and believe because you've been taught by the Father, then you come to Christ. In other words, if you have been taught by the Father, you would believe Christ. Now, I remember earlier on, there was this idea of if you believe Moses, you'd believe Christ. And that's with, what word do you believe? If you believe the word that's taught by Moses, you will believe Jesus. Now we're taught, if you've been inwardly taught by God, that means you will accept Jesus. So, there's a limiter here. If you don't accept Jesus, guess who you haven't been taught by? God. So all that the Father teaches are ones that come to Christ. So how do you know if you've been taught of God? Do you believe what the scriptures teach about Jesus? If you do, then you have been taught of God. You have been drawn to Him. You have come to Christ. If you do not believe Christ, you have not been taught of God. Whatever you think is true, whatever doctrine you have put into place of the revealed gospel, it is a falsehood and a vain imagining of men. All who are taught of God come to Christ. Now, the New Covenant promises that all the elect will be drawn, will come, and will believe in Christ. Hearing and learning from the Father is through the Son, because none of the race of man has seen the Father except for the Son who is from the Father. Right? There's that, that language. Look at verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father. Right? Nobody except for Christ and the race of man had seen the Father. Except he who is from God. Who's that one? That's Christ. He was sent. Right? That's what he said earlier. 
He was sent with the seal on him. Christ has seen the Father. So in other words, Christ is not only a mediator in terms of payment for sin as a priest. He is also a mediator as a prophet. We depend upon Christ's revealing to know the Father. He is the one who has seen the Father. And he brings the message from heaven. Verse 47 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So this is an assertion. The earlier assertion was, if you've been taught by the Father, then you come to Christ. And now there's the assertion that if you have belief in Christ, you have everlasting life. You can't come to Christ unless the Father draws you. If the Father does draw you, you do come to Christ. If you do come to Christ, then you do have everlasting life. This is a chain of universal assertions about how salvation works. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. There's a reaffirmation there. Another ego in me. I am that I am, the bread of life. He is asserting again. He starts by saying, back at verse 35, that he is the nourisher of life. He is the sovereign giver of life. And he, he affirms that again here. He is the bread of life. He's the sovereign giver, the sovereign nourisher of life. He is the bread from heaven. He is the bread of life. And he contrasts that with the sign. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And they're dead. They're dead. That life that they had is gone. You're focused on the material life. You're focused on your material body. You're focused on this material bread that feeds the material body. You need the spiritual bread. You need the bread of life. And it will cause you to have life. Do not focus on mammon. Do not focus on this temporary bread. Focus on the bread that endures. Jesus tells us elsewhere, if you focus on that, it leads to the temporal blessings too. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The contrast with the sign versus the reality. The manna versus believing Christ, believing the word. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And so his flesh, he gives his body to be broken, to die for the sins of the elect. And he, he gives life to the world, not in the sense, again, of saving every single individual. This is, he's giving life to the world because he will save so many from every nation that the world will be filled with life. That there will be this process of bringing the Gentiles in, as we're taught in Romans. It will result in the jealousy of the Jews. And when the Jews are jealous and they repent and believe that it will be a regeneration, a new birth, a resurrection of the world. That there will be a life in the world, so much so, that the knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This process 
of bringing people to the knowledge of God will reach a culminating point that the world, which is dead, will be alive. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the source of life-giving. Eating Him is a metaphor for believing. We take Him in. We eat Him by believing Him. Believing His Word. Eating the physical bread from heaven is not life-giving like believing the spiritual bread from heaven. Verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? But they're, they're literally thinking about gnawing the guy's arm. They, they do not get that he is using a metaphor. I mean, how much more obvious could he be that he is giving a metaphor? But this is not, I mean, we laugh at this, but Lutherans and Roman Catholics do the same thing. They say, oh, we're going to eat his physical body by eating physical bread. Because there's either a consubstantial giving of his body, and somehow his body becomes omnipresent, swimming through the physical body right now. That's the case. Get better at swimming. Or, as the Roman Catholic doctrine would have it, Christ's body has the attribute of omnipresence, but it only really takes form at the particular place where the bread and wine are. At the action of the priest. This is just again... A silly reading of the text not getting the idea that this is about the doctrine. That Christ is his word. That we have his mind in the scriptures. That we are to understand and believe what he has revealed. The eating is understanding and believing what God, Christ has revealed about himself. Verse 53. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Okay? These people that are slow, that are not getting it, Jesus' response is not to slow down and say, Okay, guys, okay. Let me, let's, let's come on. Everybody take a knee. Let's talk. This is a metaphor. He doesn't do that. He doubles down. He goes, Oh, I see. You're offended by this. What you heard me say was, you have to eat my flesh to be saved. What I meant to say was, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what he does. He doubles down on this. He makes it more offensive. He makes it more offensive. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And so you have to ingest Jesus. You have to participate in his substance. You have to take him in. How does that occur? Right? He, his substance is his divinity and his humanity. How are you going to participate in that? Are you going to become God? That's the, that's the Eastern Orthodox answer. Theosis. The process of, of as you come to know God more, you, you, it's not so much knowing as it is staring at icons. Okay? You make a drawing of Jesus by the proper people. The appointed drawers of Jesus. 
And if you stare at these pictures, it will make your nature transform to be more like God. That's the process of theosis. So the presence of, in Rome, the presence of Christ is in the bread and wine. In Eastern Orthodoxy, it's in the icons. The presence of Christ in Protestantism is the word. That's what the Bible teaches. God didn't give us a picture book. And he didn't give us a divine process of making bread or wine. He gave us the word. He gave us a book filled with propositions. And so we eat Jesus' body. We participate in his nature by the word coming to us and our minds being renewed after the image, the icon of Christ. The word of God causes us to be transformed and renewed. We drink his blood by taking in his word. He is the water of life. He is that wine. His blood, his life is given to us in the word. So if you don't eat his flesh or drink his blood, you don't have any life in you. You see how important this is? I mean, you don't have any life in you unless you eat his bread, his blood, eat his flesh and drink his blood. You don't have any life in you unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood. So it's a pretty big deal to figure out how to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is a life or death kind of thing. Because you don't have any life if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood. So this is a very important question. Do we need icons? Do we need a sacramental system that is dependent upon a priesthood with the proper apostolic succession? Or do we need this word from heaven? The way you eat his flesh and drink his blood is by taking his word in, understanding it and believing it. And you can't do that unless the Father draws you. And if he does draw you, it will happen. You see how this puts the fear of God into you? You have to depend upon him. Look to him as a maiden looks to her mistress to provide. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Okay, if you don't eat the flesh and don't drink the blood, you don't have life. If you do, then you do have life. This is now the alone instrument of life-giving. And so, if we read in other passages that saving faith is eternal life, if we read in other passages that knowing God is everlasting life, which we read in John 17, 3, then they have to be the same thing. Because this says, if you have one, then you have everlasting life. If you eat the bread, if you eat the flesh, and you drink the blood, you have life. And John 17, 3 says, if you know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, then you have life. They must be the same. So the knowledge of God is the possession of the flesh and blood. John 3 teaches us that faith is the alone difference. That all those who believe 
are saved and not condemned. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, he has everlasting life, and it keeps trans. It says everlasting in some cases and eternal in the other. It's the same Greek word. It's just everlasting. And I will raise him up at the last day. So this is going to last, and it's going to be a resurrection unto life. That gets repeated over and over. <coughs> Verse fifty-five. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Sometimes you'll see people make abiding into a distinct action. What Jesus does is he keeps equating the things. He says, if you believe, you've come to me. And if you've come to me, you've eaten my flesh and you've drunk my blood. And this is what it is to abide in me. Abiding in Christ is having unity with Him in doctrine or having unity with Him in law. Does He represent you in law? Do you have His truth? Are you in union with His truth? Are you united with Him in law? He who drinks the blood of Christ abides in Christ and Christ abides in Him. There's a mutual presence. There's being in Christ legally and being united to him intellectually. And this is that union. It's a union because it's not just one way. Your thoughts become the same as his thoughts in terms of what he's taught you. And he represents you and has taken all of your guilt and given you all of his righteousness. There is a union there of law and a union of doctrine. This is also connected to the idea that Christ is really and truly present when we take the Lord's Supper. How? By faith. When you're believing Him, He is really present in your mind. He is truly present in your mind. Not in a corporal and carnal sense, but in a real sense and in a true sense. Verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So Christ in his divinity has life in himself. He is talking about in his humanity, right? The living Father sent Jesus to be the God-man mediator. Christ in his humanity lives because the Father grants his humanity life through the Spirit. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. So there's a, as you participate in Christ by faith, there's a participating in his life. This is the bread which came down from heaven. What is? Jesus is. Jesus is the bread that came from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So, remember, this was his response to the Jews saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, he just doubles down on the analogy and emphasizes it. Now, he gives things in such a way that you need to start going, okay, so you're the bread from heaven. We need to eat you. If we don't eat you, we're going to die. If we do eat you, we're going to live. 
And so their response is to depart. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? I don't understand what this guy's saying. What does it mean? This is the response of many of his disciples. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? Well, now that you, now you mentioned it, Jesus, yeah, it does. I said we, we were just talking about that, but this seems this is a little offensive. Uh, it's a hard, it's a hard thing. We're 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 a little offended. What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Right? He says, "Oh, does this offend you?" Well, when I return to the throne at my Father's right hand, what will you think then? That is his response. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And so now he's asserting the cause and source of life is the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Father chooses and he draws. How does he draw? By the work of the Holy Spirit. The flesh profits nothing. Human nature, what's in you, Profits nothing. You have no power to give yourself life. You have no power to give yourself faith. You have no power to understand or to believe. It depends upon the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is speaking with words, knowing that on some of the ears, those words will pound to no profit. But on some of those ears, the Holy Spirit will cause a hearing that is not just by the external ear, but with the inward man, and then it will be accompanied with belief. That God will give faith, give life, give belief. That there will be an abiding of the word in that person, a participation in Christ, a eating of his flesh, a drinking of his blood, a believing of his words. What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Do you see how he's laid it out explicitly there now? In his final frustration, he's expressing here, the word that I'm preaching to you is spirit and life. The word. But there are some of you who do not believe. How does he know that? Because they don't even understand him. And you cannot believe what you do not understand. <coughs> For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. How do you know that? Because the Father predestined it. Because the Father elected. The Father reprobated. The Father chose what would happen and revealed it to the Son. And the Son in His human nature knew who did not believe and who would not believe and who would betray Him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. 
how can it be that anybody in the world claims to believe the Bible and to reject Calvinism? Because the flesh profits nothing. The photons can hit the cones and rods of their eyes as they read the Bible over and over again. They can hear preaching. The sound waves can pound against the ear. But unless the Holy Spirit gives life, there will be no belief. There will be twisting of the Scripture to their own destruction. The Spirit is the one that gives life. And the flesh has no power to do it. No one can come to Jesus unless coming to Jesus, which was defined earlier as believing Jesus, unless belief in Jesus is granted to him by the Father. The sovereignty of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit are all asserted in this text. Their individual roles, their participation in salvation, how it all works, how they work together. The inter-Trinitarian covenant, the economy of the Trinity, all of it's laid out here. The sovereignty of God in election. The total depravity of man. The way in which Christ's death is to give life as a limited atonement. The irresistible grace of God and the perseverance of the saints are all laid out in this text. The response of preaching these doctrines of the sovereignty of God in salvation is from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? That was probably offensive. Seem offensive? If I were preaching on something, and some people started to grumble about it, and I doubled down and doubled down and doubled down until they left, and then, let's say half of you stay. So they're gone, I get up to the pulpit and I say, You, you people who are still here, do you also want to go away? You go, I stayed. We stayed, the other people left, we stayed, what do you mean? Jesus is not afraid of men. Jesus is not a people pleaser. Jesus is not concerned about making people feel particularly uncomfortable. His concern is to glorify the Father and to do what He's been commanded in the face of human hatred. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. These people apostatized. They made profession. They acknowledged Christ as the Christ. They said, Jesus is the Christ. He's the God. We're going to make Him King. He's the prophet. He made all this bread. Let's make Him King. Let's do this thing. And then He says, Eat my flesh and drink my blood or you are going to hell. And what is the response? It's a hard thing, Jesus. What are you talking about? And so Jesus says to his twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter gets it. The words of eternal life. 
That's the thing. He is explaining there that the words of eternal life, that's the bread of life. He's saying, Lord, I, we, we get it. Like, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? We're used to Peter being the guy who gives the wrong answer. Right? So everybody kind of stops and goes, did Peter get this right? Is this, what's happening here? Peter giving a right answer. Verse 69. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he's equating, you have the words of life, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is not to say, gold star, Peter, well done. He says, I chose you. I chose you. Did I not choose you, the twelve? Jesus is taking credit there for that faith. Oh, that's good, Peter. Didn't I choose you? And one of you is a devil. So there's Judas now, this call out. You, you, you think Peter's going to come in and say, no, we're with you. We're, we're loyal. We're the guys. And Jesus goes, great. I appreciate it, guys. Let's do the thing. Everybody huddle up. All right, go team, go. The response is, ah, that's great. I chose you. And one of you, one of you is a devil. What does that do to company morale? Right? How does everybody leave that meeting? One of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Okay, this gives to us a distinction between the invisible church and the visible church. Chapter 6 of John is a very important and powerful text to teach us that doctrine. Here's a bunch of people that claim to be disciples and they were scared off by the doctrine. When Jesus faithfully taught the doctrine of the gospel, the result was that people were frustrated, angry, and they left. And even when some of them didn't, some of the ones that stayed, minority, less, way less, still unbelieving traitors, Judas. So here is this idea that even amongst those who are part of the visible church, even when there's powerful, pure teaching, even when there's offensive doctrine out of the word of God, there will be some who are unbelieving in the midst. So I encourage you to examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. It is not your presence at church. It is not your entering into a covenant at a rigorous or strident church. It is not partaking in the Lord's Supper. It is not baptism. It is not simply hearing the word preached. Do you believe in the Christ of Scripture? Do you believe that He paid for your sins? Do you believe that He gave you life by His Spirit and that you have no power to save yourself? If you don't believe those things, you have no part in Jesus and have not been taught of God. If you do believe them, then though everyone in the world condemn you, the Father will not forsake you, and Christ will not let you go. That is the life. That is the bread from heaven. It cannot grow moldy. It cannot be lost. If you have it, you will not be hungry. God will satisfy you. He will feed you in the wilderness. He will guard you by night. He will not 
let you go. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. Cordova. Thank you for your teaching, Elder Reese. Um, Christ did not fear of any men with God's truth, so we ought not to as well. Um, what do you say to those men that push back on that, saying we must win people over with love or in a more gentle fashion? So you see Jesus... Um, being more gentle at first, and when people are sticking around and they're not getting it, he becomes less gentle. So higher authority, more responsibility, less gentleness. Been around longer, higher responsibility, less gentleness. Those who are of lower authority and have been around less, you receive the most gentle treatment. And so what we see with Christ here is even when he's being hard, he still increases his clarity. He goes, okay, let me explain it to you. You don't get it? Okay, I'm going to reassert the hard saying, and now I'm going to explain it some more. You don't get it? I'm going to reassert the hard saying, and I'm going to explain more. Right? So he keeps layering on more and more explanation, even as he is being hard, even as he is not backing down. He continues to assert the offensive things, but gives more explanation. And so... That's the way that we should be controlled. Because we're not just like going around saying cryptic things and being like, eat Jesus' you know, flesh and drink his blood and then walking on without explaining it. That, you know, that's not how you evangelize in the street. Right? What you do is you use hard sayings to get attention and then you explain. And then if people still are objecting, you can you, know, you reassert. Right? So there's, this, there's, the hard, there's the difficult sayings, there's the, 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 the proverbs of the wise, the hard sayings. And then there's the explaining. And so Jesus does both. So does that make clear the greater responsibility, more harshness, and then also you still keep explaining? Thank you. Okay. Great. Great.